Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Hello, I'm John Molesky. Welcome back to another edition of the Wilson Center's Need to Know podcast. Well, there's no doubt that the war between Hamas and Israel will have lasting implications, most of which are impossible to discern when passions are high and the fog of war is thick. Regional stability doesn't just matter to Israel and its neighbors. Most of the world benefits from stability in the Middle East. The Abraham Accords and the process of normalizing and strengthening relations between Israel and what was hoped to be a growing number of Arab nations held great promise, but what now? Is the current conflict just a bump in the road to a more peaceful and integrated region? Or has the unprecedented Hamas attack in Israel's ongoing response critically damaged hopes for expanding the Accords? To help us know what we need to know about this, my guest is the director of the Wilson Center's Middle East program, Marissa Kerma. Marissa, welcome. Thank you for joining Thank us. Thank you, John, for having me. So, Marissa, before we talk about the impact of the war, let's roll back the clock and talk about pre-Hamas attack. What was the status of the Accords at that time and what had they achieved? So just a, a month before the Hamas attacks on Israel, October 7th, um, the countries that signed the Abraham Accords, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Morocco, were commemorating the third anniversary of the Abraham Accords. Uh, by then, multiple agreements had been signed uh, between the respective countries and Israel um, on the security front, economic front, including free trade agreements that were signed with the UAE, Morocco, and Bahrain, as well as um, other exchanges, um, you know, in, in the sciences, technology, medicine. I mean, this, the sectors really were very diverse. And of course, we also saw a significant uptick in bilateral tourism, uh, primarily from, um, uh, you know, Israel to many of these countries, but also vice versa. And the trade volume increased and it slightly increased with the other two countries that signed peace treaties with Israel, that is Jordan and Egypt. Um, but of course, the, the Abraham Accords were signed between governments and um, it did not necessarily reflect where people are at, uh, not necessarily in the respective three countries that signed them, but across the region, because many people in the region basically felt that the Abraham Accords completely flipped an initiative that was put forward in 2002 by the Arab League, led by Saudi Arabia, by the late King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia at the time, wherein the Arab states would normalize relations with Israel only when Israel's occupation of the Palestinian territories comes to an end and a Palestinian state is created. And so many felt that the Palestinian cause was marginalized and, um, uh, and, and sentiments vis-a-vis -vis the accords sort of went through different ebbs and flows from significant support in when they were signed with slight uh, declines, um, even in the countries that signed them. But in countries like Morocco, Bahrain, and the United Arab Emirates, at least 30 to 40 percent viewed the accords as a positive development. Um, uh, and in other countries, it was, of course, much, much lower than that. Was there an expectation of expansion 
There was, of course, an expectation of expansion. Um, of course, Sudan was also a signatory, but we kind of, mm-hmm. you know, unfortunately leave Sudan out right now of the discussions because of the of the war, the civil war that's going on right now, but also the complexities of the political situation when they were signed. Um, but the Biden administration had also taken the Abraham Accords uh, a step further and um, moved very aggressively to broker an agreement between Saudi Arabia and Israel. And at the UN General Assembly meetings, for example, we heard from both um, Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu as well as Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia on you know two separate occasions that they are, if not days away, at least getting closer day to day. And so this was um, happening. It, it probably would have happened by the end of this year, maybe in a few months from now. But of course, October 7th came to change a lot of these dynamics. And these talks are at, at a minimum at a pause for now. So, so Marissa, uh, let our listeners and viewers know you just returned from a trip to Morocco uh, and have joined us graciously even in encountering jet lag. <laughs> Uh, what did you What did you encounter? What was What could you What's the vibe? You know, I, I'm looking for that sort of visceral sense of sure. what the mood is. The mood is is uh, expectedly very grim. There's a lot of mm. anger. There's a lot of you know emotionally charged people, um, and it is overwhelmingly pro-Palestinian. Um, and by pro-Palestinian, meaning that most people are calling for a ceasefire for the end of the war. Um, and for um, Palestinians to have the, the right to their own state, uh, to freedom, to rights. And so um, it, the, the conference I was at is one of the largest gatherings bringing together the global south with Europe, with the United States. So it's a really, it was a really interesting dynamic because this came up at every discussion that had a mention of the United States or Europe or even Ukraine or China. You know, the questions were really very much focused about, well, what are you going to do about the current situation in Gaza? Why are, why are, um, you know, major governments in, in the West and the United States turning a blind eye to the suffering of the, of the Palestinians? Um, and so these things were very much present. Um, and, you know, Morocco, of course, um, is, as I mentioned, one of the signatory countries. Morocco um, did not recall its ambassador to Israel, but my understanding is that the Israeli ambassador returned, um, the Israeli ambassador in Rabat, Morocco, returned to Israel after October 7th, perhaps for security reasons, but that seems to be a trend um, amongst many of the others as well, um, uh, other countries. Um, um, and uh, unfortunately, you know, this is going to put a dent in many of the, you know, uh, agreements that were signed and perhaps this the strategic relationships that were built. Uh, bilateral tourism was um, was on the rise uh, between the two countries, but now Morocco is, um, there's a warning for Israeli citizens to visit Morocco, for example, for tourism. So this really um, impacts all of these different aspects. Um, and needless to say, Moroccans, akin to other uh, people in the uh, Arab world, uh, also marched um, in protest uh, of the war in Gaza, um, and um, and some even demanded the annulment of the Abraham Accords. So, I know it's difficult to get inside the head of Hamas and its leadership, uh, 
but you know, we do know that their ongoing goal is to see the destruction of Israel or the end of Israel. But beyond that, do we know why this type of attack would happen when it did happen? And I'm wondering specifically, were the, the partial success or the limited success of the Abraham Accords part of the motivation for Hamas to attack because they didn't like to see Israel normalizing relations? And then I wonder if the chaos that we're seeing now and the international pressures on Israel are part of the outcome that Hamas was looking for as well. I mean, we're going to, um, you know, unpack this more and more as uh, things develop and hopefully in the near future when the war ends um, and, and better understand what Hamas's motivations are. But from what Hamas leaders have mentioned so far, um, uh, through, you know, various platforms as well as interviews that they've given, uh, you know, different Arab channels. It is, um, it is clear that the, uh, Abraham Accords were parts of that calculus, not necessarily because, you know, these Arab countries went ahead and normalized relations, but because those normalization accords in their view, as well as the view of many others in the region, marginalized the Palestinian cause mm -hmm. and marginalized just the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, which is remains to be one of the long-standing conflicts in the region. It's a reality that I think you know many people perhaps don't read about it on a daily basis in the United States because it's not headline news every day, but every development. In, on that arena, you know, prior to October 7th, that is, um, is reported in the news. It's on Al Jazeera. It's on Al Arabiya. It's on the local news channels. It's in the newspapers. And so, um, this is what people are seeing on a regular basis, on a daily basis. And so for them, they see this very differently than I think other audiences do. What you're describing is a chronic condition, and of course, chronic conditions don't end until they are pushed to an acute stage, and that's might be where we are now. So my, my final question for you today, Marissa, is about that long-term prognosis. What does this do to the idea of a two-state solution? Does this current war make that a more likely outcome or a less likely outcome? I mean, that is the outcome that the vast majority of actors in the international arena are committed to as the resolution, as the only possible way to resolve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. It's the uh, end of the Israeli occupation and the creation of a Palestinian state, wherein you have two states living side by side in peace and security. And so this is, um, of course, uh, going to be very difficult, and it may take a long time for us to get there after the war ends. Uh, but, it, but, you know, there's also questions that are being asked about the viability of the palace of the two state solution, given that there have been so many challenges. Um, you know, settlement activity has continued over the years. And so this is going to require, um, political will on all sides, um, and, uh, leadership, not just leadership in terms of taking positions of authority, but exercising leadership because, because the cost for both is going to be even higher now, given, given the grief and the anger and, and the, the suffering that, that, um, uh, that we are, we are witnessing, um, unfold, um, um, in this war. 
Uh, and I think th there's something to be said about the two narratives of the both peoples, the Palestinians and Israelis. You know, for the Israelis, the October 7th attack was the worst attack on them, on the Jewish people since the Holocaust. And so there's the trauma of the Holocaust, and that narrative has to be um, understood by the other side. And and on the other side, the Palestinians have their own trauma with the Nakba, which translates in Arabic to the catastrophe, wherein Palestinians were expelled or forced out uh, or fled um, uh, in 1948 and also at other junctures of various Arab-Israeli wars that took, took place. And so it's um, equally important for, you know, for these two narratives to, to be part of the dialogue, to be part of the negotiations. And that's how you're able to go beyond signing peace treaties between governments, but ensuring that there's understanding at a minimum, or at a minimum, even it, the not dehumanizing, which is really such a low bar, but it is so important because that's the only way forward for both peoples to live in peace and security next to each other. Well, you know, thank you for your work in, in helping us try to get to a place where there's more understanding. And I should tell our, our listeners that for more information and insights on the war in the Middle East program's work, you can visit wilsoncenter.org. There's a programs tab at the top of the homepage. If you click that, go to the Middle East program, you're going to find a lot of important information that Marissa is and her team have been churning out even before the war began, but certainly now on hyperspeed. Marissa, thank you. Thank you so much, John. So that's all for this edition of Need to Know. Until next time, for all of us at the Wilson Center, I'm John Molesky. Thank you for your time and interest.